Well, thank you, Esther, for your testimony. You finally get to give your membership testimony at Cornerstone. You've been at Cornerstone at least a year, right? So we're really behind in our members' interviews. Well, praise God for uh, God's work in your life, for just the centrality of God's Word and your salvation, how the Word of God pierced your heart. It wasn't through some experience or emotion or some extra-biblical thing that caused you to open your heart to the Lord. It was the Word, word that was, the Scripture's Word that was preached. And may God's Word continue to be held high in your life. I mean, you honor it uh, through your obedience. Well, praise God. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, New Year's Day again. What a great way to uh, start off 2006 by gathering together with fellow believers and just gathering around praise, gathering around prayer, and gathering around the Word. Now, you know, for me, I'm always uncomfortable with like Christmas services or New Year's services because people expect a special sermon. And I've been thinking about uh, this Sunday for quite a few weeks now, knowing that January 1st we all gathered here and you guys want a special sermon to encourage you for 2006. And I rallied about back and forth on what passage to speak from. And I got the idea for this sermon from a, a book that I've been reading called Farewell Sermons. Uh, for my birthday, I've, I got this much-coveted book. I've been eyeing this book for a while now. And I got this book. It's a collection of sermons preached by Puritan pastors who are getting kicked out of the churches in England. Um, Queen Mary converted to Catholicism. She forbade preaching of the Protestant gospel. So all these non-conformist pastors uh, lost their license to preach in their churches. So each one of them had one last opportunity to address their congregation and proclaim God's truth. So it's a choice book. I mean, these sermons are, are truths that are, that are being just bled by the pastors, godly men behind the pulpit. So it's the kind of book that I'm reading very slowly, very carefully. I'm not you know, rushing through it at all. I'm reading chapter maybe every other day just to kind of let it soak into my soul. Well, Thomas Manton, a godly Puritan pastor, um, gave his, his last sermon and was based on Hebrews 12, 1, 2, and 3. And uh, I was so encouraged, so moved. I put a little bookmark on my mind and told myself um, on January 1st, I want to preach from Hebrews 12, 1, 2, and 3, and that is how we find ourselves in this passage this morning. Now to start us off, all throughout America, there are places devoted to men and women who have excelled at a certain sport or excelled in certain uh, pursuit in life. Um, these are places, museums, buildings, halls, dedicated to human accomplishments, human achievements. And these sites attract millions of visitors each year. I mean, men, women, boys and girls go to see pictures, life-size replicas, memorabilia of these athletes, entertainers. Many of you know these sites, and I want to just ask you, interactive time, do a little quiz. I mean, some of you should know where they're located. The National... Uh, baseball Hall of Fame is located at a very good Cooperstown. What state? A minus half points right there. <laughs> Cooperstown, 
No, wrong. Close. East Coast? New York. Cooperstown, New York. So if you were to ever visit Cooperstown, New York, the Baseball Hall of Fame, you will see the actual face mask worn by Carlton Fisk on August 19, 1988, when he played his 1807th game as a catcher, breaking the previous American League record held by Rick Porrell. I don't know. But you will see that mask if you go there. You'll, actually, you'll see the actual uniforms worn by Ruth, Aaron, and Colfax. You'll see the baseball signed by the 1957 World Series umpiring crew. Right, this baseball is not signed by the players, but signed by the umpires, and that is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Or more importantly, you will find the records of all the accomplishments of these Hall of Famers. You'll find statistic after statistic of why these men deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. RBI, right? No. Uh, runs batted in for the sisters, right? <laughs> ERA, earned run average. Um, you know, uh, number of championships, number of gold gloves, number of MVPs and so forth. And all these are uh, the reasons why Dave entered the Hall of Fame. Another Hall of Fame is the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and that is located in... Wow, pretty good. Jason, right? <laughs> too, too, too much ESPN.com reading over there, right? Canton, Ohio, and there you'll find, you know, all those memorabilia about football and jerseys and, you know... Again, you will find all the statistics on the number of wins, championships, yards gained, touchdowns, tackles, interceptions... And all these stats uh, tell the world why this man belongs in this Hall of Fame. Last one is, to show that it's just about sports, is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That is located in Cleveland, Ohio. Kirk Bulis. Very good. Was it Kirk? Okay. Oh, Danny. Danny. Two for, two for three. So you'll find records, sold, number of top ten hits, and why they belong in the Hall of Fame. There's, there's one more Hall of Fame. You guys know where I'm going with this, right? Uh, there's one more. It's, it's the most important one. It's the only one that is truly eternal. It'll never be destroyed. These stats will abide forever. And it's not in a city. It's not on earth, but it's in the Bible. A Hall of Fame in the Bible and you will find it, not in chapter 12, but in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 11 is the Hall of Fame of Faith Runners. Hall of Fame of Faith Runners. This chapter is a list of men and women who have excelled in faith. Who model true faith in God and in His promises. Now these names are familiar to all of us. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, and many others. These are faithful believers who embodied, verse 1, having hope and things unseen, conviction and things desired for. They embodied genuine faith. They had assurance of things hoped for, convictions of things not yet seen. They lived their lives according to things that was not visibly seen by them. Verse 2 says, There are people of old who obeyed God because of their faith in God and in His promises. In chapter 12, verse 1, uh, the writer refers to them as a cloud of witnesses. A cloud of witnesses. The phrase, a cloud of witnesses, 
means there are so many beyond just this list. There are too many to count. This is just a representative of the cloud of witnesses. There are so many that they seem to be a cloud. They loom large in this hall of fame of faith. Now, the requirements to qualify for, the, for this hall of fame the requirements are different than baseball, football, basketball, or rock and roll. It's not about how far you hit the ball, how many shots you made, how many records you've sold. Here are the five requirements that these men and women have met that grant them entrance into this Hall of Fame of Faith. These are five traits that are common in all believers that are included in chapter 11. The first requirement that they met, first trait that is common, is that they all believed in God and God's promises. Each of them, they all believed in God, they all believed in God's promises. You will see this formula throughout chapter 11, the words by faith. Verse 4, by faith Abel. Verse 5, by faith Enoch. Verse 7, by faith Noah. That formula by faith is found only 29 times in all the epistles. Romans all the way to Jude, by faith is found 29 times. In chapter 11, it's found 23 times. By faith, by faith, by faith. These men and women lived by faith. The central description that marks them out, the distinguishing character of their lives, they lived by faith. By faith, by faith, by faith, they believed and they lived according to faith in God and faith in God's promises. That's the first thing you notice about them. First thing that qualifies them. The second one is that they obeyed God's word, proving that they had genuine faith. They obeyed God's word, <coughs> showing, proving that they had genuine faith faith. You go through chapter 11 and you will find that the words by faith is always accompanied by a verb. Always accompanied by a verb. Verse 4, by faith Abel. What did he do? He sacrificed. He offered. It's not Abel by faith, period. Or Abel had faith. You know, he didn't do anything. We just assume he had faith because he's a good guy. No, we know he had faith by what he did. He offered a better sacrifice. Verse 7, by faith, what did Noah do? Noah constructed an ark. There's that verb. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed. He obeyed God. When he was called to go out to a place, not knowing where he was going. Abraham, I want you to leave your family. Leave your friends. Leave that land. Leave your culture. Leave your, your, your surroundings. Where am I going to go? Well, you know, I'm not going to tell you, but I want you to go. What did Abraham do? By faith, he obeyed. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah received power to conceive. Even the act of receiving is by faith. Going on to verses 24 through 26. This is great. By faith, Moses, when he, grew up, when he was grown up, refused. That's the first verb. His first act of faith was he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
Instead, he chose that second verse, second verb, rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The third verb, he considered the reproach with Christ as of greater wealth and the treasures of Egypt where he was looking ahead to the reward. The last one is verse 31, by faith Rahab. This prostitute, by faith, what did she do? She welcomed the spies. She didn't reject them. She didn't lock, the do- lock her doors on them. She welcomed them in by faith. This shows that for each of them, their faith was a vibrant, dynamic, and powerful influence in their lives that translated into action, translated into behavior, translated into decisions. Their faith was clearly seen by their obedience to God's word. So we, it's clear, they knew nothing of what is so popular in the church today. The kind of faith that is preached and proclaimed and ascribed to by many. A faith that is not saving, not sanctifying, non-transforming. A faith that does not produce fruit. A faith that is not visible. A faith that is just mere talk. Mere words. And they think that is genuine faith. These men and women knew knew nothing of such a sort of faith. For them, faith always produced fruit. Faith was always seen in action. Faith was clearly seen. Faith was real. It was seen by their life of submission to God's Word. First two traits, first requirements they met was they believed in God, they obeyed God and God's Word. Third, a trait common to all these men and women, they sacrificed and suffered for their faith. They sacrificed and suffered for their faith. Their faith was such that it cost them a great price. And they were willing to pay any price because of their faith in God. They, all of them, paid a great price. Abel was murdered. I mean, think about it. You're a younger brother. You have an older brother who's bigger than you, stronger than you, has an anger issue, right? And he's offering a poor sacrifice, a sacrifice that you knew was not pleasing to God. You have a decision. I'm just going to keep peace. I'm not going to rock the boat. I'll sacrifice, you know, even a worse sacrifice so Cain won't get angry. He's so sensitive about these things. Or, you can do what Abel did. Man, I'm going to obey God. Even if it means offending my brother, and even if it means provoking him to anger, I'm going to obey God. Even if it means, you know, my life. Abel suffered, and he paid a Pay the price. He was murdered. Noah was ostracized and mocked. Right? Building an ark in the middle of the desert. You can't build an ark in your basement. You can't build an ark in your garage. You build it in public. And people were, you know, scoffing, mocking, laughing, ridiculing him. He paid a price in terms of his reputation. Abraham, you know, paid a, paid a great cost left his family, left his friends, left his culture to a place he didn't even know. <coughs> Abraham and Sarah paid a cost. They offered their son as a sacrifice, given up to the Lord, to God, according to God's word, God's command. 
Now ultimately God spared Isaac, but in their hearts, soon as God commanded Abraham, give up your son, I'm sure Abraham told Sarah. It is, it's a family decision. It's not something you keep from your wife. Right? So for both of them, as soon as God told them, give me your son whom you love, for them in their hearts, they felt the pain of losing their only child. Moses, you know, he, he suffered the price of being mistreated with God's people rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And it goes on. Go down to verse 32. The writer of Hebrews says, Man, I wish I had more, more pages. I mean, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, how he suffered. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight, flight, excuse me, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So countless men and women, because of their faith, they sacrificed and suffered a great deal because of their faith in God. That qualified them to be in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Fourth, fourth one is they persevered in their faith. They persevered in obedience. They didn't quit. Right? They went the distance. They ran the race of faith and they didn't Give up. That is such a temptation, is it not? I mean, to give up. To slacken in the race of faith. Because the race of faith is an internal race. So outwardly, you can do all the religious things. You can go to church, go to flock. You know, you can sing, and you can give offering. And externally, do all the things that others do. But in your heart, you can give up. You can quit. You can surrender. You can relinquish this race and just in your heart live to enjoy this world and then obey Christ. While these men and women suffer, suffering and being persecuted, going through torture, they didn't quit. They didn't give up. Now, these were regular human beings. They weren't special by any means. They were far from perfect. You read the Old Testament and you've experienced frustration at their you know, foolishness, at their stupidity, at their just short-sightedness. I mean, look at Noah. He gets, I mean, he gets saved with his family. You know, builds an ark. God's power is revealed to him. And what does he do? The first thing he does after this great miracle is he gets drunk. Come on, Noah, what are you doing? Right? He got, he got drunk? And now it's in the Bible for the rest of the, you know, eternity? Right? What about like Abraham, habitual liar? I told everybody his wife is his sister, again and again. I mean, that's an embarrassment for him, but embarrassment for his wife. What did his wife do? Like, 
Here's your husband lying about you and the sin of the family and it's being passed down to the children. What about Sarah? She laughed at God. Right? God said, you will bear a child. And she just laughed at God's face. What about Moses? He abused his authority. He misrepresented God. What about Rahab? She was a prostitute, an immoral woman. They weren't like special people. They weren't superhuman, perfect people. No, they were like you and I. Regular sinners. Except, they had faith. They obeyed because of their faith. They suffered for their faith. And though tempted, they did not quit. They persevered. And then the final one. They did not receive their reward on earth. They did not receive the answer to their to the promises on earth. Right. None of them received their rewards on earth. None of them were considered as success stories. Most of them were cautionary tales of what not to do in life. If they were to write a book, they wouldn't be on the top ten, you know, bestseller list. They wouldn't be on self-help, you know, shelves. There'll be cautionary tales on what not to do in life. We're looking at verses 8 through 10 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. He went to live in a land, as in a foreign land, living in tents. Verse 10. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He went to a city that God had called him to. But his faith was not in an earthly city. His faith was not in a reward on earth. His faith was in a city whose designer and builder is God. And that was heaven. Go down to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, knowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. None of them received anything. All of them saw from a distance, saw the sacrifice of Christ, and saw the promise of heaven, and received God's promises in that way, but their reward was not on the earth. Current uh, faith teachers, you know, those who promise a blessing on earth, health, wealth, prosperity, you obey God, and God will bless you, you know, on the earth, they need to read the Bible. I mean, it's, it's so clear. Just read Hebrews 11 and 12. Right? Reward for faith is not here on earth. Reward is given in heaven. And the reward is heaven. Right? These um, five distinguishing traits of these men and women grant them entrance into the hall of fame of faith. In 12.1, the writer describes them as witnesses. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So we're going down this hall and we're surrounded by hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of men and women and their faith. And the writer calls them witnesses. And martyrion, where we get the word martyr, they are witnesses giving testimony. Now what is their testimony? 
what is their declaration as members of this Hall of Fame of Faith? Their testimony is this, is that faith works, that faith in God saves sinners, that faith in God sanctifies, that faith in God transforms. And the secret is not the amount of faith, the secret is the object of faith. Right? So I talked to a person a while back and said, Do you believe in God? Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe in the Bible? Yes, but I struggle to believe. Do you have a mustard seed of faith in God? And he said, I do. I have a mustard seed. Then that's the same amount these men and women had. They had a, a, a small faith in a great, powerful, awesome God. And that faith saved them. That faith sanctified them. That faith transformed their lives to live a life worthy of being testimonies to Christ and being entered into the hall of fame of faith. Isn't Isn't that awesome? Isn't that incredible? Because such witnesses are so rare today in the church. In the world today, Such witnesses are rare, are they not? I remember when I first became a believer, there were so many who were older than me who told me, yeah, I've done that before. Yeah, James, you know, I prayed that prayer. I went to retreats and, you know, I try to believe in God and Christ and try to live, you know, in a life of obedience. It doesn't work. It doesn't last. Right? James, once you go to college, it's over, man. You know? Once you're on your own without your parents... Your Christian life, you'll see, it's just because of your surroundings. And then once I'm in college, you know, the collegians told me, nah, it works now, but once you go out in the real world, you get a real job, and you have to make you know, ends meet, forget it. Faith doesn't work in the real world. Or others tell you, yeah, well, wait till you get married. Or wait till you have children. You know, it's not realistic. You know, faith works in the Bible, but not in the real world. They tell you, all men lose heart. Everyone loses faith. It's part of growing up. It's great in youth ministry. You know, it's great in college ministry. You know, maybe it's great on Sunday mornings, but not in the real world. It can't be done. And you see people like that, you know, in the church or among uh, Christian fellowships, men and women who've uh, kind of given up. They're, they're not running the race anymore. They're not fighting. They have that kind of glazed look in their eyes. I mean, certainly I talk about that. What happened to that guy? He used to have, you know, fire in his eyes. He used to be passionate for Christ. Man, he used to believe. He used to be a man of conviction and commitment. What happened? Uh, he lost faith, right? They've given up. They've quit. They've surrendered to the demands and pressures of life. And we're surrounded by such examples. It is in this context the men of Hebrews 11 stand out. Men and women of Hebrews 11 stand out. These men and women raise their voice and they say, they declare, they shout out, we did it. We did it. It can be done. It is a possibility. They surround us and their lives are an encouragement to us. 
Because they lived by faith. and They obeyed God. They paid a great price. But they endured. And they received their rewards, not on earth, but in heaven. They rose above their circumstances. And they carved out a life for themselves, giving glory and honor to God. They didn't allow life to dictate to them how to live their lives. No, they dictated to their lives how they will li- how they will live, and that was dictated by their faith. Their faith determined the course of their lives. The idea is not, um, you know, we're in LA Coliseum, we're running a race, and there are spectators watching us. No, the idea is we're in this hall, and we're walking down this hall, and we see writings on the wall of men and women who lived valiantly, lived biblically, and lived by faith. And that encourages us. Their successful example, them having done it, them having lived it, encourages us and it inspires us to say, hey, you know, I can do it too. Right? I can do it too. It is the same God. God of Noah. God of Abraham. God of Moses is my God. God of yesterday, yesterday is the God of today. And is God of tomorrow. God has not weakened. He has not lost interest in His people. He has not lessened His love or care for us. I can run just as well as these men and women have, because God is the same. That's, what the, that's the argument of the writer of Hebrews in 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, therefore, and he gives us five exhortations, five commands, five applications for us, because we are so encouraged by the example of these godly men and women in chapter 11. Therefore, he says, let us do five things. Let us commit to doing, doing these five things. And um, you know, I exhort all of you, 2006, to carefully consider each one of these things in your life. And um, carefully, methodically, courageously apply these truths, these commands to your lives. First one is, let us lay aside every weight. Lay aside every weight. The word is ankhon. Every burden. Every encumbrance. Set aside everything that weighs us down. Set aside, get rid of anything that slows us in the race that hinders us from running freely. In the 70s, a Russian marathoner who held the world record in the marathon came to run some races in the U.S. He lost four races in a row. A reporter asked him, you know, what's going on? How come you're losing? You're the fastest man in the world. How come you're losing? And he replied, I'm out of shape. I am three pounds overweight. Wow, you know, for many of us, it's a cost for celebration. If we're only three pounds overweight, right? When's the last time any of us could say that? For this guy, you know, world-class athlete, three pounds. Difference between winning and losing. Success and failure. 
That is the idea here. Right. Remove every weight, any encumbrance. Right. It is not necessarily bad in itself. Something, it could be something perfectly innocent, perfectly harmless, but it weighs us down, diverts our attention, saps our strength, our energy, and dampens our enthusiasm with the things of God. When we consider a habit, consider a hobby, consider a pursuit, one of the first questions we need to ask ourselves is, how will it help me in the race of faith? Will it help me or will it hinder me? And people say, is it sin? Right? Is it unbiblical? Is it disobedience? No, it could be something very, uh, very neutral. But the question is, is it a weight? that will load you down and slow you in the race. We need to understand that the enemy of the best is often that which is good. And learn this spiritual truth that for every decision there is a spiritual price. For every decision we pay a spiritual price. I remember talking to a pastor years ago, pastor of a ministry, and it was during those dot-com boom years, where, you know, it's a boom when, like, you know, pastors get into E-Trade and start trading stock, right? You know, like, regular people are, like, getting into the internet and doing day trading. That's what he got into. As a pastor, what does he know about, like, stocks and bonds and whatever else is out there? What does he know? But, you know, he started to get involved in that and started trading and trading and it started to become a weight in his life and, you know, five minutes a day and 30 minutes an hour and he's checking his email, doing research online and checking the, you know, what, what to sell, what to buy. And that took a toll. That took a spiritual toll. And he was burned out from ministry. Now, was he burned out of ministry that caused him to go into pretty much gambling? Or did the gambling cause him to burn out in ministry? What came first? I don't know. I don't know his heart. I don't know the exact situation. But I know you pay a price. Right? You pay a price. I, I remember um, years ago I had this junky car, you know, uh, Oldsmobile cutlass or something and I was actually going through a speed bump at Long Beach State with Billy and uh, the whole front panel came off (laughs) and Billy and I had to put it back because but man I love that car because there was no spiritual price driving that car I could park that car downtown Long Beach my heart is at peace right I could park that car anywhere you know Um, no problem it gets stolen I lose 50 bucks big deal right (laughs) but right you guys know what I'm talking about. If you buy a nice, expensive car, right? not that you shouldn't. I mean, I'm not saying that at all. Please, go, go ahead and you go afford it. Go ahead and buy it. But you understand, the insurance, the care, and you park it, and there's a car, you know, it's not a good car, and close to the lines, you park it, you're worried about it, it opens the door, it scratches your car, and that little chip on your paint costs you $500 to fix, and so on, and so on. There is a spiritual price you pay. In terms of hobbies as well, I mean, human beings are notorious 
for how easily we become addicted to things. Did you notice that? It's easier to become addicted to anything. Like, you know, one of the reasons I try not to play golf is because, man, you guys know how competitive I am. And once I get into it, I don't know where I'll stop. I'll probably stop, wait, maybe a Bob stops me. Gee, that's too much. Uh, you're playing like four times a week, right? Like, I rail against video games because, man, I'm a boy at heart. I know if my church people bought me Xbox 360, right? Man, I could sit there. I haven't done it. I won't do it. But I could. I mean, trust me, I could. Play there all day and night, right? I know I could watch basketball, right? I mean, forever. Literally forever, right? (laughs) All these things are potentials for me to get addicted and ensnare me and bear me now. Do you understand just how things can entangle you and entrap you and slow you down in the race? Right? Even hobbies and games, you know, relationships, you know, music, you know, internet. I mean, useless information. I mean, the world creates weight. The world creates burdens for us, weights for us, distractions for us. That is their business. Well, the writer of Hebrews says, lay aside every weight that hinders you. Our question is, at what cost? I'm not proposing you know, a monkish lifestyle without any hobbies, recreation. God knows, as long as we're doing it for the glory of God, we can enjoy sports, enjoy things created, enjoy food. If you know me, you know I enjoy these things, right? But I'm saying you need to know what price you're paying. The writer, if it's a weight, if it's hindering you, throw it away. Let us lay aside every weight. And then secondly, lay aside the sin which clings so closely. The sin. Now the word, is the sin here is singular. There is a besetting sin. There is the sin... <clears throat> that entangles all of us. It's like we wouldn't run a hundred yard dash with, you know, with a long dress or I don't know, with our shoe laces untied or, you know, we wouldn't run holding a guitar or something, right? Because that would, would entangle us and would trip. There's an idea that there's a sin that entangles us, stumbling us in the, in the race. And it's singular. It's not a sin where we all have different sins, you know, some people's laziness. Some people it's gluttony, some people it's worry, some people it's impurity. You know, you got to find out what sin entangles you and get rid of that. You know, the idea is there is the sin that entangles all of us. We need to lay that, lay that aside. And what is that sin? I believe in the context of chapter 11 and 12, the sin is the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief. The core sin that gives rise to all other sins. Right? We, we lust after, we, we're impure because we don't believe God satisfies all our needs, right? We crave for material things because we don't believe we're, we're, we're complete in Christ. Right? We, we're envious, we're jealous, we're proud because we don't believe in God. The core sin is a sin of unbelief that gives rise to all these acts of sin, the fruits of sin. Our job is not to cut the fruits off, Bad fruit, our job is to go to the heart, go to the core, go to the root, which is a sin of unbelief. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. The writer of Hebrews describes it twice 
in this short passage. Hebrews chapter 3.12 Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Apistos. A heart that does not believe. And he calls it evil. And what is this unbelieving heart that is evil? What does that cause you to do? It doesn't slow you down in the race. You know, these neutral things in the world, it slows us down, but it doesn't stop us from following Christ. An unbelieving, unbelieving heart leads you to fall away from the living God. The, the, the seriousness is not stopped several degrees here. The consequences, the gravity of this is far greater than some weight. This unbelieving heart will lead you away from God. Leads us to fall away from God. This, this sin stumbles us in the race. Verse 13, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of this sin. This sin is deceitful. Because it's under the radar. It's hidden by other sins. So instead of seeing the sin as the sin of unbelief, we think, oh, I've got to stop being jealous. Oh, I've got to stop my you know, impure heart, impure thoughts. Oh, I've got to you know, quit being angry, quit being malicious. Oh, I've got to cut these things out. And your whole life you're living as someone who lives by works, you know, false religion. It's all works, all works. And all along, the evil, unbelieving heart remains the same. Christianity is about faith. It's not about obeying the law, but it's obeying the law because we believe the core sin is a sin of unbelief. That's the cancer. And it, therefore, it is deceitful. Verse 15, If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Everyone saw the miracle of God. Everyone passed through the Red Sea right, on dry ground. Yet, some of them believed, saw and believed. Many saw, but did not believe. Going on to verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The sin of unbelief. That is a question to ask when we see sin in our lives. I have to lay aside my heart that is not believing in God right now. I am anxious. I am full of worry. I am full of you know, discontentment. Full of all these things. The issue is not you know, my job. The issue is not that my family, or issue is not my friends, the issue is not that person, the issue is, I'm not believing in God right now, I'm not believing in God's sovereignty, I'm not believing in God's goodness, I'm not believing in that God is just, God is true, I must lay aside this sin, because if I don't lay aside, it's going to entangle me and lead me astray, lead me away from God, right. so let us lay aside every weight, lay aside the sin, Two negatives are behind us. Three positive exhortations. The third one is, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run with endurance the race that is set before us.
The idea is we need endurance to run this race because there is pain involved. It is difficult. It is challenging. It is heartbreaking. Right? We need to have the mindset, I'm going to endure through pain. I'm going to endure through suffering, endure through heartache. If we have a mindset as we start this race, I'm going to run, but as soon as I feel pain, I'm going to quit. You might, might as well not run, right? If you're going to train for the LA Marathon and say, yeah, but as soon as I start breaking a sweat, you know, I said, I'm going home, right? As soon as my makeup starts running, you know, as soon as my hair gets a little ruffled, I'm going to quit. I'm going to sit down and have a burger. I mean, forget it. You know, don't even start the race. The mentality is, man, I'm going to run and I'm going to develop endurance because I'm going to need it because it's difficult, it's challenging, it's humiliating, right? It's going to require courage on my part, a heart of perseverance. I did some research for today's sermon and looked up uh, Steve Prefontaine. You guys know who he is? Arguably one of the greatest mid-level or long-distance runner America has ever produced. He held seven American records at one time by himself. Never been done since. Never been done before or since. Right? He, he, he came fourth in 72 Munich Olympics. He was second going to the last turn uh, of the race. He could have coasted in and, and, went and got the silver medal. But his heart was, I entered to win. I didn't win her to go for the gold. He had a decision, either go for the gold and lose everything, or just take it easy and win the silver. That's Steve Prefontaine. He was 21 years old. Everyone was three or four years older than him. 21, first Olympics. He went for it all. I mean, he lost. But he said, I'll do it again. Because I'm running to win. I'm not running, right, uh, to, to protect myself and get a silver or bronze. This is what he said. Quote, a lot of people run to see who is the fastest. I run to see who has the most guts. Who can punish himself into exhausting pace and then at the end punish himself even more. End quote. Man, that's right. Well, I like that. I, I wonder if he's a Christian. He should be a Christian. Right? That's what Hebrews 12 is talking about. It's about endurance. It's not about who is quickest. It's not who's the fastest. It's about who has guts to face his fears. Right? Face his shortcomings, face his sins, face the challenges of the race of the Christian life, and faces up to them and he endures, he perseveres in this race. It's not about finishing first in the Christian race, it's finishing the race. It's about endurance, it's about going the distance. A church is full of these, uh, you know, here today, gone tomorrow, short spurt Christians. But God is interested in those who will go the distance. You know, who want to stay here, be in the race today, tomorrow, next week, next year, 10 years, 50 years to the end. Let us run with perseverance. Two more. We are laying aside every weight, laying aside the sin running with endurance, the fourth one, fixing our eyes, looking at, looking at Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So as you know, uh, the runners out there, you guys understand, uh, where you look is extremely important. Nothing will throw off your stride or slow you down than like looking at your feet or looking at other runners or looking at the stands, the crowd in the stands. 
the Christian, Christian race is very much like this. We need to have our vision clear. Have our eyes fixed on the right person. It's easy for us in the Christian race to have our eyes fixed on wrong people. Let me give you three categories of people that we're prone to, to be fixated upon and how that hinders us in the race. The first person we shouldn't fix our eyes upon is ourselves. It's ourselves. Let's stay up and think about our weaknesses, our inadequacies, our limitations, our failings, shortcomings, difficulties, what we don't have, what gifts, what intelligence, things that we don't have, what challenges that are unique to us. And I think that our situation is so unique and that we become immersed in selfish self-pity. Self-centered self-pity. So I'm going to pity party for yourself and you're just focused on yourself. At that point, you're not living by faith. You're not running the race of faith. You're not running the race marked out for you. You're running a completely different race. Not a race of faith. You fix your eyes on yourself. It will paralyze you from the race. It will stop you. It will cause you to choke. It will cause you to choke. The elders, Bobby and I, we talk about this all the time. We we paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld, what he said. You know, some guy asked, "Oh, how come we don't have you know this equipment, that equipment? How come we don't have these lasers that shoot from the satellites and you know get all the you know whatever bombs, IEDs off and protect our soldiers, or whatever?" And he was saying, "You go to war with the army you have, not the army you want to have." And I was like, "That's that's great. That's great." We paraphrase that. If we do ministry with as men as we are. Not the men we want to be. Man, I wish I was godlier. Man, I wish I was, you know, knew the Bible better. I wish I was so many things. Bob does. I know many, all of you do. I wish, man, I wish I was, you know, Thomas Manton, you know, John Owen, MacArthur, so on. But I'm not. So what am I going to do? Just focus on how I am not these things, therefore not minister, not preach, not shepherd, or say, it's not about me. I'm going to look at Jesus. My adequacy is not myself, but it's Christ. So the word, the, you don't want to look at yourselves. Fix your eyes on yourself. You know, fix your eyes on Christ. Secondly, you don't want to fix your eyes on your leaders. You don't want to be, you don't want to run this race to please your leaders, please your pastors, please your elders. Right? You know, a few months ago, I had a dinner meeting with a brother and he was telling me how he struggled for so many years and he realized one of the core reasons why he struggled in his Christian faith and he said all this time James I've been trying to please you right man I almost like busted out laughing I was like control yourself James because I was thinking you haven't done a very good job with my brother right if you're going to please me do a good job but he didn't do a good job. Well, he, okay job. He's doing better now. But That's a pressure for all of us, right? When, when I'm expositors, I'm sitting there with John MacArthur. I want to please him. And I'm sure for you guys, you want to please the elders, please your flock shepherd, right? But that's going to hinder you. That's going to stumble you in the race, right? You might say, well, Pastor James, you don't understand what that's like, that pressure, the constraining pressure to, to please other people. But trust me, if anyone understands that, in ministry, it's James Shane. Because who has the most pressure to please people at Cornerstone? It's me. Right? I, I'm, I'm pressured. Like, 
on my preaching, on my shepherding, my personality, my humor, right? My, how I dress, right? Jokes I tell, the kind of food I eat, because I live in a glass bubble. There's such a temptation for me to please people so that they'll grow in Christ and they'll, they'll love the Lord and so on and so on, right? But I fight that fight. I battle that battle and saying I'm not here to to have people like me or have people approve of me. I'm here to wash people's feet. And that's how I fight it. I exhort you to have that mentality. Right? You're not here to please me or please Bob or please your flock shepherds. You're here to love us, to pray for us, to serve us, right? to fight alongside of us, not to please us. And then the final person you don't want to focus on is other believers. Other believers. Comparing yourself with others. Wrong mindset of competition. Idea of who is getting more attention, who is getting more influence, a better role, better position in ministry. This is clearly seen in John 21, 20-23. You don't have to turn it out, just paraphrase it. But this is quite comical. Peter denied the Lord three times. In John 21, Christ restores Peter and Christ tells him, when you were young, you dressed yourself, when you are older, someone else will dress you, indicating his future, how Peter will die because of his faith in Christ. When, and then Peter's response was, okay, now that you told me what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to John? He puts his foot in his mouth. What's going to happen to John? And our Lord's response to him is, what is that to you, Peter? What I do with John is of no matter to you. You follow me. It's a temptation for us to be focused on other believers as if we're competing against each other. No. The writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Christ. He gives us four descriptions. We'll go by them pretty quickly. He's the founder of our faith. He's the author of our faith. He's the one who began our faith, the originator of not just Abel, right, Enoch, Noah, Moses, right, on down the line. He is the author of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. Do we not love that? He's going to finish the work that He began in us. He's going to mature our faith and complete it. Or one day we'll have full faith in God and His promises. He is the one who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. What was His joy? It wasn't some kind of Stephanos wreath that was crowned to the, uh, the victors of the Ithmian Games. It wasn't a gold or silver or bronze medal. No, He endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him. What was His joy? Obeying the Father. Giving glory to the Father. John 7, 1, John 4, 34 despising the, sh- the shame of the cross. He disregarded the humiliation of the cross. Right? The dishonor, the shame, the disgrace of going to the cross. He disregarded it. He, he set it aside. And for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. And is today seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The fourth description is the one that reveals that Christ is seated next to God in all His glory, honor, and majesty. He is seated as a king next to uh, God Himself. 
So, laying aside every weight, laying aside the sin, running with perseverance, fixing our eyes on Christ. Number five, fifth exhortation. And in fact, this is the one command in this passage. It's an imperative mood. Consider Him. It's an, an order, a command to all of us to consider Christ who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not go weary or faint-hearted. read a story this week that perfectly illustrates the point that the author is making here in verse 3. In fact, the credit goes to Mr. Tom Furco. He read this article, thought of me. He clipped it out for me to read. And it's a, a powerful story that illustrates verse 3. It's about a man named Tibor Rubin, a Jewish man originally from Hungary. He was recently awarded the nation's highest medal of valor in combat by President Bush. Um, the Congressional Medal of Honor is the nation's highest medal for valor in combat that can be awarded to members of the armed forces. This medal is awarded sparingly, bestowed only to the bravest of the brave, and the valor must be well documented. It was given this past year because his superior officer was anti-Semitic. So though he proved himself in 1950, it took 55 years, but he finally got the award a few months ago. He has an interesting story. He, as a teenager, survived 14 months in the Methusen death camp in Austria, where 150,000 Jews were murdered. His mother and sister both died in the gas chambers in Auschwitz. He was 16 when he was rescued by U.S. soldiers, and he told himself if he ever got to the U.S., he would join the U.S. Army to pay this country back for rescuing him. At the age of 20, he enlisted in the army, was rejected twice because of his poor English. On his third try, he was admitted to the U.S. Army. At the age of 20, he found himself in the U.S. Army 1st Cavalry Division fighting North Korean troops in Busan. During the fighting in the Busan perimeter, he single-handedly defended a hill that was attacked in human ways by North Korean troops. He was alone on this hill he fired his rifle, a machine gun, and threw hand grenades for 24 hours by himself, all hoping that by using different weapons, they would think that there was more than one soldier defending this hill. After the engagement, members of his unit counted 400 enemy dead. So in 24 hours, he killed 400 enemy troops. Later that year, he was seriously wounded and taken prisoner by the Chinese army and he was placed in an army prisoner camp for 30 months. He said his time at the Methusen camp in Austria provided basic training because he had experience in a concentration camp. Because he had experience, he learned the power of not giving up. He daily stole food for his malnourished fellow prisoners of war. One time he stole a 50-pound bag of potatoes. He daily, daily boiled water. He treated their injuries. And according to testimonials from other Americans, he saved the lives of 35 to 40 fellow soldiers by his work in the prison. 
a fellow prisoner said of him, he risked his life again and again for men he might never see again. Now, Furco gave me this article. I did some research on the, on the internet and found this interview that this reporter did with him. And one question this reporter asked him was this. Who is your hero? Who inspires you? Who inspired you to do what you did? And he said this. My little sister was in Auschwitz and taken into the gas chamber. And my mother went along. She didn't have to. Only little children were forced to go into the gas chamber. She didn't have to, but she couldn't allow the little one to go into the gas chamber by herself. My mom went with her. I think about what my mom did, and that inspires me. Wow, I read the perfect illustration for verse 3. Right? Here is this mom, daughter is going to concentration camp. She doesn't need to, but she goes along right? to be at, be at her side, to die together. That's what Christ did. Christ voluntarily went to the cross. He endured hostility against himself by sinful men, though he didn't need to. Why? Why did he go to the cross? Because his death saved us. Right? His death forgave us of our sins. Not his suffering. He didn't suffer to save us. His suffering, his sacrifice, his torture had no power to deliver us from sin. But verse 3 tells us he suffered, experienced hostility so that you and I might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Do you see that? He suffered so that he might be an example to us in our suffering, in our difficulties, in our hours of trial. We can look to Christ and see what he did and how he went to the cross that inspires us not to give up. So for us, our hero is not Abel. It's not Enoch. Our hero is not Noah or Abraham or Moses. They don't want that accolade. They don't want that attention. Christians, our hero is Jesus Christ. We consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. Why? So that you and I, in our race of faith, will not grow weary or faint-hearted. Well, 2006, let us together consider these five things. What is slowing you down? What weight is slowing you down? Sin of unbelief. Will you trust God this year? Will you trust God this year for your future, for your family, for your work? How about for your finances? Will you trust God? Will you stop trusting in yourself for your children and trust in God? How about for ministry? How about for church? How about for relationships? How about all your personal struggles? Will you trust in God this year? Lay aside the sin that, that potentially will lead you astray from God? Will you run with perseverance this year? Will you look to Jesus, taking your eyes off yourself, off your leaders, off others? Will you look to Jesus and the hours of trial and temptation? Will you... May we consider Him who endured the cross so that we might persevere in the race. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a joy it is whenever we come to the Word of God 
and the beauty of Christ is displayed before our eyes. As we see the scriptures describe our loving Lord and Savior, describe His humiliation, describe what motivated Him to go to the cross, and describe His loving compassion, His tender care for us, O oh Lord, we declare He is indeed beautiful. He is indeed our inspiration. He is our hero. O oh Lord, may we be moved by the truth of Christ and moved to lay aside every weight, lay aside the sin of unbelief, lay aside our desire to quit. Instead, let us run with perseverance. Help us, O oh Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and that every moment of temptation to consider Him. O oh Lord, would You give us guts, Lord. Give us courage. Give us strong hearts to run this race this year with valor. Run this race with courage so that at the end of our lives, at the the day of your return, we can say, I ran a good race, fought a good fight. We're ready to be with you. Lord, we commit the next uh, 51 Sundays, the next uh, 364 days, onto you. Lord, may you grant grace to us, to our church, and to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.